So a few months ago, we here at Redeemer began a journey through this book that's called 1 Peter. Um, it's, it's a book in the Bible for us, but it was a letter written by Peter who walked with Jesus. It was a letter written by Peter to a group of Christians who were suffering and were about to suffer greatly simply because they belonged to Jesus. And here's the crazy thing about this letter. Peter actually believed that knowing Christ, having the Holy Spirit, and walking with the church makes a difference while we suffer. And here we are in our suburban lifestyles, and we fail to believe that Jesus can make a difference in our ease and in our comfort. And Peter one-ups us and says, Jesus makes every difference at the lowest points. Jesus makes every ounce of difference in the hardest places. It's as if we could convey to our friends and our brothers and sisters in Florida today as a hurricane comes sweeping over their land, Christ is with you. Christ will sustain you. No matter the losses that you face today, Jesus is the difference. He is the answer and He will be with you. That's about as real and tangible as I can think to be. We'll come back to Florida later in the service. But for now, what Peter is saying, Jesus is real because God is real and because God created everything and because we belong to him and because we need his grace and because his grace is real, I can write to you and I can say, stand firm in Christ. Hold on to him. Humble yourself before God because he will exalt you. Look to the Lord because he'll be with you. Trust in the Lord because he cares for you. Peter believes that, that belonging to Christ means we belong to our Father in heaven who made us. And Peter believes that that bears fruit in real life and real hardship and real places. So what I want you to walk out of here today with is a belief and a confidence that the grace of God extended to us through His Son, Jesus, is real and it will sustain. It's real and it will sustain you where you are. Because I think that's what Peter wants you to believe. So, if I got you for 30 seconds this morning, here it is. Look to Jesus because the grace that comes through Him and Him alone is real, it's saving, it's powerful, it makes all things new, and it bears much fruit in real hardship. That's the truth. That's the truth. So let's look at the passage. Let's look at how Peter lays this out. And we're actually going to take this from bottom to top today. That's maybe not the best way to read, but that's what we're going to do. So the first point for my note-taking friends, true 
grace. True grace. I'll give you some verses and then we'll talk about them. Begin reading in verse 12 with me. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Do you hear what Peter's saying there? All that I've written to you, every single word is true and it conveys the grace of God to you. Now those are churchy words, aren't they? Truth and grace. So let's not lose the gravity of what Peter is saying. It is true. That means what I'm talking to you about is real. It's accurate. It's without error. It's without defect. It will guide you accurately. What I am saying to you today is true. That's a bold claim for Peter to make, right? It's true. Our acceptance or denial of what Peter has said hinges on one thing. Do we believe that it is true? Peter believes it's so true that it should shape your entire life because he says, stand firm in it. Don't dabble in it. Don't put your toe in to see how it feels. Don't ponder it. Don't consider it. Don't play around with it. But stand firm in it. He's saying, plant your feet. Build your life. Build your house. Build your hope. That's a metaphorical house, not a real house, just for the record. Build everything on what I have said to you. Plant yourself in it because it is true. Peter says it's true and it's God's grace to us. It's God's grace to us. Again, grace, a churchy word that's maybe lost some of its meaning. But grace means undeserved blessing, undeserved kindness, undeserved favor. And the message that Peter is writing is not live in such a way that you prove yourself lovable. It's not live in such a way that you prove yourself strong. It's not live in such a way that you prove yourself moral, but it is Live in such a way that you know that everything you need physically and spiritually comes from the hand of God and He gives it out freely. He does not make you earn what you need. He sent His Son to purchase it for you. That's our hope. That's what this book is about, is we can plant our lives in the true grace of God. We can plant our lives in the true grace of God.
verse 12, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. How much, Peter, can we plant our lives in this message of God's grace extended through Jesus Christ that that covers our sins, that gives new life, that makes all things new? Peter, how much can we depend our lives upon this message which you tell us is true? Look at verse 11. To him be Cover your Bibles up. You might expect glory, right? You might expect it to say glory because often these books end with a, a to, to God be praise and exaltation forever, but that's not what Peter says. He says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here's what Peter's saying. God has the authority. He is the ruler. He is in control of everything here and now, then and forever. Jesus is the king. He's the ruler. He's the authority. He's in control. And so Peter says, you can plant your life in this truth about Jesus because dominion is his now and forever and ever. Amen. Do you hear what Peter's saying there? There will not be a moment anywhere for all of eternity whereby Jesus is not in control of everything. And if he's purchased our salvation, if he's purchased our new life in Christ, if he's purchased our placement in the family of God, if he's promised to be with us, then we can build everything on that because the dominion is his today and the dominion will be his tomorrow and the dominion will be his forever. That's a promise. Amen. Amen. That's right. Amen. We can say that at Redeemer. Just want you to know that. I'm not that old school, but in certain things like amens during sermons, like count me in. I'm as old school as they come. So Peter says, there's a true grace that you can stand firm in. And you can stand firm in that grace because Jesus has dominion forever and ever. Amen. And he tells us what that means. He tells us what it means that the God of all grace will be with us. So let's go back up one more verse to verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Do you see what Peter's doing right there? He's he's taking this theological concept and he's bringing it to bear in real, tangible ways. Do you see that? This God of grace, who has dominion now and forever... He's called you. His calling is eternal. And He will restore you. Whatever has been lost in your life for the cause of Christ, it is not in vain because Christ will restore you. He'll confirm you. Whatever there is about your life and your faith, that makes you question your standing before the Lord, He'll confirm you. 
Wherever it is that you feel like you cannot put one foot in front of another, where you feel like there is no strength, Christ will strengthen you. And wherever it is that you feel like you are baseless and hopeless and nothing to build on, basically he's saying when you don't feel like you can stand firm because you think the ground might fall out from under you, Jesus will establish you. Do you see what Peter's doing? He's saying, bring me your doubt. Jesus will meet you there. Bring me your fear. Jesus will meet you there. Bring me your sin. Jesus will be gracious to you there. Bring me your stumbling. Jesus will help you there. Bring me your falling. Jesus will pick you up there. Bring me your lack of hope about tomorrow. And Jesus will show you himself there The God of all glory, the God of all power, the God of all strength promises that to His people, His grace is unending forever. So He says, come running to Jesus because this grace is true grace and you can stand firm in it. So this morning... There's a bunch of stuff going on in this room right now. Grief, it's here. Depression, it's here. Anxiety, it's here. Fear, it's here. Loss, it's here. Sin, it's here. Because I'm here. Unrepentant sin, it's possibly here. Probably so. Brokenness, it's here. Physical hurting, it's here. Financial loss, it's here. Identity struggles, they're here. It's all here. And I'm guessing that you're here today because you either believe or hope that in some way Jesus can help you there, right? You either believe or you hope that in some way this thing of the church, this thing of the gospel, this thing about Christ will bear some fruit in your real life. Peter says it will and it does and it always will come running to the Lord. Stand firm in the grace that is in Christ. Now, before we move on from this point, I just want to say a few things. Christians, let's never fall into the trap of believing that we can move past needing God's grace. Let's not fall into the trap of believing that we can move past needing God's grace. Because yes, the grace of God extended through Jesus Christ is the door by which we enter Christianity, but it's also the path and the road, and the light, and everything that the path is made of. Every step of our eternal lives are based upon the grace of God extended through Jesus Christ. So just because we live in the South, just because we think we're pretty moral people, just because we grew up going to church, just because we think we voted the right way in the last election, or just because we've repented of how we voted already, it doesn't matter. Either way, We're not better. We're not above. We're not sophisticated. 
We have not moved beyond sinners who need the grace of God. Grace is everything. And for whatever reason, we always want to get up off the mat of grace and move into self-sustainment. And it never, ever, ever works. Period. So if you're here today and you're like, man, you people are crazy. I can't believe I came here. I would just say this. First of all, we're glad you're here. Second of all, we are probably a little bit crazy, but you should come back. Third of all, I know that the things I'm talking about today are real in your life, and I would commend Jesus Christ to you. I would commend the grace of God purchased upon a cross on Calvary 2,000 years ago to you, and I would promise you that in Christ you will be restored and confirmed and strengthened and established, and I would invite you to let us join what God's doing to show you how great Jesus is and how great salvation is. So Peter ends this book by saying, the grace is true, stand in it. But interestingly, he also tells us, and this moves to our second point, he tells us how we're supposed to stand firm. And he tells us to stand firm humbly. He tells us to stand firm humbly. So humility is not a virtue in the sense that if we're humble, God loves us more, and if we're not humble, God hates us. Humility is not a virtue in the sense that it makes us morally superior or above or better. But as we said last week, and I would just push you back to last week's sermon because as much as I want to re-preach it, I'm not going to. Humility, that is recognizing God's greatness our lack of greatness, our need of God's grace, and yielding, humbling ourselves before him, saying, save me, redeem me, help me, pour out your grace upon me, is the posture of a Christian. And that translates into even how we stand firm. We're called to stand firm. We're called to stand in the faith, but we're called to do so humbly. It's as if Peter's saying there's no place for Christians to bow their chests out and beat their breasts and say, we're awesome and you're terrible. We've got it all together and you're wretched. Just get on our page and everything will be good for you. Just think like me and all your problems will go away. And I know I sound really belligerent and a little bit hostile right now, But we all know that for whatever reason, conservative, theologically driven Christians tend to drift toward, when left to ourselves, coming off like we're superior and we've got it all together because we have good, clear, logical thoughts. And I love good, clear, logical thoughts. Please don't bring me any unclear, illogical pablum because it'll make me sweat and scream. That was supposed to be funny and like one person laughed. I love good, clear, logical thoughts. But good, clear, logical thoughts put forth in anger and hostility do not commend the grace of God. It's good, clear, logical thoughts humbled before the Lord 
crying out in dependence, crying out for mercy that commend the grace of God to the world. Listen to what Peter says. Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He might exalt you. Do you hear that? Christians, as you stand firm, do so, humbling yourself before God. Don't exalt yourself. God is the one who exalts, and He does it in His time. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So our confidence in the true grace of God calls us to stand firm, but to do so with great humility before God. Christians always humble ourselves before God. And that humbling, that deferring, that putting down our awesomeness and recognizing that we're nothing and Jesus has everything, that humility shapes the way that we're called to posture ourselves in this world, in this church, and toward one another and toward God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, So hear that. This is how we humble ourselves. First, we trust that God has a mighty hand that saves. We trust that God has a mighty hand, a saving hand, a powerful hand, a reigning hand, and we can humble ourselves before Him knowing that in due time He exalts His people. So we humble ourselves before God first by trusting that He is powerful, He is able, and He will save. Second, we humble ourselves before God by casting all our anxieties on Him. Do we have any warriors here? Warriors? Anybody besides me who likes to worry? I didn't say warrior, but worriers. You know, it's 3.30 in the morning. You're staring at the ceiling. You're counting the, the places where the sheetrock is, is messed up because you ran out of sheep to count a few hours before. The noise on the fans just driving you crazy, and there's one thing that you can't stop worrying about. You know that moment, or is that just me? Just me, thanks. Well, y'all just bear with me for a minute, okay? Peter says that when we carry our anxieties as if we're the ones who are going to fix them, we're actually being arrogant and we're not humbling ourselves in the sight of God. Oh, that hurt, didn't it? I'm not even going to say it again. That hurt. When we carry our anxieties as if we're the only ones who can fix them, as if making the wrongs in the world right is our job, we are being arrogant before God and we are not humbling ourselves in His sight. Jesus came, lived, 
died and rose again to prove to you that God cares for you. That's the gospel in that that clause. Because He cares for you. Jesus came to prove that God cares for you. Right down to the things that are causing you anxiety and fear and doubt and compulsion. God cares for you. Cast your anxieties upon Him. That means take them to the Lord. Ask for His help. Ask for His wisdom. Ask for His intervention. Ask for His leading. Ask for His blessing. You're probably going to think I'm making this up because it just sounds convenient, but I promise you, this is true. We'll have an elders meeting here at Redeemer and we'll decide that there's a hard conversation that needs to be had. And then we'll say, who's going to have that conversation? And everybody will look at me, you know, like you're the one that gets the paycheck. Go, go have the hard conversation. And I go, okay. And I'm driving to said difficult meeting and I, and I, and I, and I think this. I have no idea what I'm about to say. None. I have no idea how I'm going to bring this hard topic up. I have no idea how there's any way that this is going to end in peace or unity or love. I have no idea. And usually I have to go through all my own self-solutions before I get to the end of myself. But when I get there, usually like at the last red light, I pray, Father, help me. Father, please Please go with me into this conversation. Father, please go before me. Please pave a way. Father, please open a door. Father, please help this end in a way that honors you, builds your church, and brings peace and unity between me and this person I have to have a hard conversation with. And I can't tell you how many times I walk in and the person goes, hey, can we talk about, and they just name the issue. Like, I'm not making that up. It happens to me all the time. So either I'm the luckiest man in the world, that's a lie. Either I'm a really, really great person who has great people skills, you should chuckle. Or the Lord cares about the anxieties and the fears of his people and he promises to meet us there. I just, I just, Peter, I'm not, I'm taking no credit. The Holy Spirit speaking through Peter just changed your world right there. Believe that today. Believe that today. If we had a church sign, which, which hopefully we never will, that has like where you change the message out front, we'd put that up out there this week. And then on Wednesday, we put something really cheesy and stupid up. But anyway, that's why we'll never have one of those. But, but that's what I want you to remember today. Cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. So if we're, to, if we're to humble ourselves before God, we will trust that he has a mighty hand and he will exalt us. We're to cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us. Third, Peter says, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. We've talked about this before, and so I'm not going to belabor the point, but sober means not intoxicated. Sober means able to focus on what is real and tangible and in front of you. And Peter says, let your whole being be sober, meaning let it be honest, 
Let it be truthful. Let it be balanced. Let it be reasonable. And let it focus on God and His great grace. Be sober-minded. So raging anger is not sober-minded, and raging anger is not standing firm humbly. Unbridled arrogance is not being sober-minded, and unbridled arrogance is not standing firm humbly. I could go on. I will leave you there. Fourth, be watchful. Be watchful. You know what it means to be watchful? It means to be watchful. Apparently I'm not funny today. I'll just stop trying. Think of a watchman. We could be attacked at any moment. You can't go to sleep tonight. I need you to stay awake and watch for the family to make sure no one is coming in. You don't even have to have a real watchman anymore. You can just go buy one. A little Nest camera, put it on the outside of your house, comes right to your smartphone. But you need your camera to be watchful because you don't want anyone to come steal your toys or your children, right? Watchful is always attentive, always ready, always looking out for enemies. And the point that Peter's making is, as the children of God, there is an enemy. He's an adversary. He's the devil. He's Satan. And he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour the people of God. So don't let our theology of dominion convince us that Satan is not real and that Satan is not active and that Satan would not delight in destroying the church of Jesus and destroying Redeemer Church and destroying you or in destroying your faith. I do not want to get so focused on Satan that we lose our focus on Jesus. But if we begin to act like there is not an enemy, if we begin to act like there is not an adversary seeking to destroy the church of Jesus and the people of Jesus, we will let our guards down and we will quit being watchful. So Peter's saying, recognize that you as a child of God are currently living in enemy territory and you will be sought out and you will be called out and your faith in Jesus will not always be exalted or blessed or encouraged and you might actually suffer for walking with Jesus. So be watchful. Don't be caught off guard. So to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord is to trust that God has a mighty hand, cast all of our cares upon him, be sober-minded, be watchful, and then finally think of those around the world. Think of those around the world. Peter says, resist him, this is verse 9, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter says that one way we stand firm is by recognizing that Christians in all times and in all places have suffered for their faith. 
And one of my biggest critiques about American evangelical theology is we act like America is the center of God's kingdom. We act like America is the only place where Christians are. And we say, well, there's no Christians suffering for their faith in America, so persecution must not be real. Wrong, go to India. Wrong, go to Muslim Africa. Wrong, go to parts of Europe. Just because things are good for us doesn't mean that they're good everywhere else. And then when something hard does befall us, we act like it's the only hard thing going on in the world, and we can't believe that God would dare let us have a hard day because we're His child. We forget that everywhere and always the people of God are suffering for belonging to Jesus. So Peter says when hardship comes your way, look up and look out and remember that you are a part of a holy people chosen by God to endure hardship that brings glory to God and exalts His forever dominion and you can endure by His grace. And don't make a pity party for yourself but endure the suffering of Christ for His glory. I saw the most amazing thing on Twitter this week, and usually you go to Twitter and it train wrecks your soul, right? But this week, I saw a pastor, and he tweeted this. He said, most Christians talk about how good it is that Jesus cares about our suffering. That's true, I just told you that, right? But you see, that makes us the center and Jesus ministering to us what's exalted. But the pastor said, what most Christians throughout the history have celebrated was that they were considered worthy to suffer with Jesus. I wish I would have come up with that. So it's not, oh, poor me and Jesus, how could you let this happen? But it is, what a great king that built a people and has stood firm to build and exalt and exercise his dominion forever. And what a blessing that I was counted worthy to endure what Jesus endured for the glory of God. So I'll just tell you, friends, I try to stay out of politics and I try to stay out of God and country rhetoric, and I try to stay out of cultural wars rhetoric. But I'm going to take a minute. Peter wrote to some persecuted Christians saying that Jesus is the answer, and Jesus will sustain you no matter what you lose for his name. If you haven't clued in yet, our day is coming. And it's coming quickly. To say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him is soon to be illegal hate speech. Unless the Lord intervenes and changes drastically. Let me leave that caveat there. It's soon to be hate speech. And so our profession of faith will come at the cost of our security and our comfort. To say that God created man and woman as man and woman and that it's not up for conversation will soon be hate speech. And to say so will come at the cost of our comfort and our security and our blessing.
tangible earthly joy is what I mean to say. To say that God created marriage to be between one man and one woman for a lifetime will soon be hate speech. And to say so will mean cost us our security and our comfort in this world. To say, I believe that there's any moral standard that must be upheld will soon be hate speech. And it will come at the cost of our comfort and security in this world. I'm not trying to be doomsday. I'm just trying to prepare us. The question is, will Jesus be enough for us to humbly stand firm in his true grace then? And this trickles down to all kinds of crazy stuff. I'll just give you one example and then we'll move on. Would you still feel compelled to support the ministry of the local church when you no longer get a tax write-off for it? Because your local church is guilty of hate speech. I'm not trying to boost the offerings, friends. I'm just saying... The rubber's going to meet the road. And we're all going to be caused to wrestle with this question. How much of my faith do I still hold on to when it doesn't come with ease and comfort and celebration? I'm not trying to be a downer today. I'm trying to be real. I want... I want to believe that the Jesus who helped me today will be just as sweet to me when I've lost everything because I stood up for him. And I want that to be true of you. And I want that to be true of our church. I want it to be true. So God, would you help us?